Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis chapter 6 how we need to stop making God angry, start making God happy, and start taking God seriously. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Father, thank you so much for bringing us together again, Lord. You are the great gatherer. And we thank you, Lord, that when we come together to a meeting like this with a prayer in our heart and expectation in us, Lord, to meet with you, to hear from you, we thank you, Lord, that you never send us away disappointed. And so that's what we are here this morning, Lord. Our prayer is to meet with you, to hear from you, and to spend time with our God who we love. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you uh, follow along here in Genesis chapter 6, beginning this time in verse 4. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also that after when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, And it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air. For repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will make them, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and thou shalt pitch it within and without with pitch, this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, the height of it 30 cubits, a window shalt thou make to the ark. And in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third story shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy son's wife, with thee, and every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, of cattle after their kind, creeping things of the earth after its kind. Two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Now, when we come to such a wonderful chapter as this is in chapter 6 here of Genesis, it's just really a shame when people come to verse 4 of this chapter where we started reading. They get all hung up on one word. I'm sure you're guessing what that word is. (laughs) 
And they completely miss all the important lessons that are in this chapter. It's giants. There were giants in the earth. Giants or Nephilim as it is in Hebrew. And all of a sudden people see nothing else but the Nephilim. And next thing we know, we're talking about mysterious crop circles that have appeared in England overnight. Why are those crop signals? Where they come? These great crop circles. Well, they came from the Nephilim. There they are in Genesis 6, 4, you know. Or we're talking about the Stonehenge, which is close, you know, to those crop circles. So the Nephilim didn't have to walk very far. They did it. They made Stonehenge. No other human could do that. That was the Nephilim. Or the UFOs. UFOs. Those spacecraft that light up part of the sky. And who's manning those spacecraft? It's the Nephilim. You know? And super giants. Or those strange large skeletons that have been found. What are those? No doubt. Those are the Nephilim. See, Nephilim is like Nephilimania or something like that. Anyway, so what does it say? It says there were Nephilim in the earth. Well, the word Nephilim is only used twice in the Bible. This is one place. And then there's a second place. So turn with that. We'll get some clarification, which is Numbers 13.33. Numbers 13.33. So what is Numbers 13.33? Well, it's the time when the 12 spies that Moses had sent out, Joshua was one of them, into the land, into the land of Canaan, and they came back with their report. And so it says here in Numbers 13.33 that they said, and there we saw the Nephilim. We saw the giants. And they were the sons of Anak. They were the sons of Anak, which come of the Nephilim, the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so were we in their sight. So, well, the word Nephilim simply means a tall person. That's all it means. It's a giant in the sense that these were very big people, and in this particular case, they have this genetic trait that was running through this people called the people of Anak. Some have interpreted the word as bullies or, or tyrant. So all the verse 4 is just telling us that, that there were some very tall people who were living at the time. That's all it's saying. Now what is it that we get past this issue and what is this chapter really saying to us? It's really showing us that in verse 3, you can see when he said there's 120 years left before the judgment. What you really sense there on the part of God is this reluctance to judge man. This reluctance, this hope. But nevertheless, what you have here in Genesis 6 is really an audit. God is auditing. I mean, that's the way I think about it. I mean, in our company, Scanabody's Lab, and we manufacture products, and those products are regulated by the FDA. So, you know, our pregnancy test, which everybody knows this by, its first response is an FDA-regulated product. Well, we have a thousand other products as well that we make, and all of them the FDA regulates. So what does it mean when they regulate? Well, anywhere from once a year or once every three years, they don't really give us their timetable, the FDA just comes and knocks on our door. And there they are, and they're there to do an audit of our company. And during their audit, 
the FDA makes it very clear that they're technically a part of the Department of Justice. I've never really seen one come with a gun, but they can. Anyway, but they can go anywhere. They can look at any document. They can take any sample or product they want. They can talk to anyone. And they carry out their audit anywhere from three days to one month. And they use a checklist as they go through their audit. And a good auditor, because we've seen them all, is like a hawk. And he comes in, and you can talk all the niceties you want to him. And, you know, would you like a nice seat? Do some coffee or something? No, no, no. He is zeroed in on his checklist. And he's zeroing in. And he gets right down to business. And he gets right to the heart of what he's focused on. It doesn't take you long to figure out what he's focused on. And a good auditor asks pointed questions where there's only a yes-no answer. And he drives for that yes-no answer. And then he asks for the documents to verify the responses. And a good auditor can tell if a person is responsive or resistant to him. And we have a whole department in our company that just prepares for these audits and tries to anticipate what the FDA is going to ask for. And their checklist changes every year, as I'm sure you're all aware of the meningitis outbreak as a result of this New England compounding company. And so now the FDA is going to be coming with all those kind of questions about uh, fungus and things like that. So, but at the end of their audit, we don't have to ask, how did we do? Because what the FDA auditor does, and he gives us a Form 483. Everybody calls it 483. And the 483 has all the findings that are problematic. You'll never see on a 483, you really did a good job, this is a great company or anything like that. They, they don't put that down there. It's only the problems that they find. And by each finding, there is a place for a company to put three responses the first one is, do you agree with the finding or not? It's not a good idea to not agree. So but anyway, nevertheless, you put down if you agree with the finding. The second, by each finding, is you must write down what is your proposed corrective action for each of the findings. And the third is, when will this corrective action be completed? Now, the responses to each of those problematic findings on the 483 has to be submitted to the FDA within 15 days. Now, if the findings of their audit are so bad, or if you don't respond within 15 days, then you'll receive another nice letter from the FDA called a warning letter. That's when the FDA states that within so many days the company will be shut down uh, unless the FDA is notified before that that the corrective actions have been implemented for all of these problematic observations. Now, that's the process that we're seeing here in Genesis 6. God, the great auditor, is at work. And like a hawk, God goes as the great auditor and he zeroes in in verse 5. And he examines and he writes down his overall finding, his overall condition, what he found, the overall condition on his 483, and he writes down the wickedness of man was great 
in the earth. Then, like a hawk, the great auditor zeroes in from his checklist and he looks deeper into the man's thought life. And he looks and, and he writes down in verse 5 on his 483 findings about the thought life findings as he says, God says, I have found every imagination of the thoughts of his art was only evil continually. And then again, like a hawk, God the great auditor zeroes in from his checklist on the effect that man is having on his earth. And in verses 11 and 12, God writes down in his 483 findings, the earth was corrupt before God. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon earth. And then like a hawk, God, the great auditor, zeroes in from his checklist on how man was treating other men on earth. And in verses 11 and 12, he writes down in his 483 findings, the earth was filled with violence. The earth is filled with violence. That's interesting. In verse 11, it says, God wrote down his findings that he spoke to Noah, which he said the earth was filled with violence. And it's almost like he looked at it again in verse 13. And just he's speaking to Noah. He says, well, it was filled with violence and it's still filled with violence, even in the time period, wherever long it was. So these 483 observations that God has made are so bad that God goes immediately to send his warning letter to man, which is in verse 3. And that's where he says, his days shall be 120 years. God is much more lenient than the FDA. The FDA never gives 120 years to correct things. But God gave this time period to man to stop making God angry, to start making God happy, and taking God seriously. And then God wrote on his warning letter how he would shut down this operation called the earth. In verse 7, he said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. In verse 13, the end of all flesh has come before me. I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 17, behold, even I do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. Everything that is in the earth shall die. Now that was God's warning. That was God's warning letter that he wrote down. But God loves repentance. He loves to give man this interval, this space to correct his ways. And so he gives him these 120 years to respond to God's 483 observations. The 120-year period, as we said, it shows us how reluctant God is to judge, how reluctant he is to destroy God does not want to judge man in hell. He's reluctant to do that, but he will. But he holds back and gives man every opportunity to correct his ways and to implement those corrections in his life. So the 120-year period shows how much God wants to save man from his sins. But wait a minute. I thought the 120 years was the time that it took Noah to make the ark. Didn't have anything to do with God wanting to get repentance. It just took Noah a long time to build that boat. Well, yes, (laughs) but don't forget that the ark was God's plan of salvation. So during those 120 years, God had a man not only building his ark, but also preaching 
good news and bad news. The bad news is that God's going to destroy man because of his sin. The good news is, is that God's merciful and there's room on the ark for you. Though eight have come, there's still room for one. There's room on the ark for you. Noah was saying, you can get in the ark. It's big enough for you. You can get in. Now, Noah was preaching a message of self-determination. Self-determination. He was saying, the choice is 100% yours. If you choose to respond to God's conclusions about your condition on his 483 and his warning letter, and you respond to that, then you can be saved. You can determine. You yourself can determine your destiny. But if you choose not even to respond to God's conclusions and warning letter, then you'll be destroyed. But you determine. You yourself determine your destiny. So you choose. So therefore, it's self-determination. Tom, today you talked about self-determination for a person's destiny. But I remember from Proverbs 3, 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. So when does self-determination become leaning to our own understanding? That's a great verse. And that's a great question, because We are told that we have a responsibility, but as you said in Proverbs 3, 5, we are also warned that we are not to lean out to our own understanding because Proverbs says in two places that there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. In other words, there is a way which seems right to our own understanding, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And that right way that seems right to us, it seems right to us that we are good, inherently good. It seems right right to us that we can impress God with our good works. But the end of that way is destruction, and there's no greater destruction than hell. Hell is the greatest destruction. So your question, when does self-determination become leaning to our own understanding? Well, in actuality, we don't lean to our own understanding when we obey God, when we trust God, when we turn to God, when we listen to God. And God gives very specific instruction. He gives guidance for us in Deuteronomy chapter 30 when he spoke through Moses to the Jewish people. And this very, very good verses here because they show us exactly, God says, in essence, God is saying in these verses and many verses in the Bible, I know that your heart is deceitful. I know that your understanding is flawed, so I'm going to help you. And if you turn to me and and let me lead you, you will make the right decisions because I will counsel you, just as he said in Proverbs, where he said, I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also. So in other words, we look to God for for the teaching. Now, here's what it says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 16. Uh, This is God speaking through Moses to the Jewish people. In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply, and the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. So we stop here and we look at this. Here God is saying, I command thee 
In other words, he's saying, this is what I'm commanding you to do. Number one, I'm commanding you to love the Lord thy God. That's the greatest commandment. I'm commanding you to love the Lord thy God, which will blossom out to you walk in his ways, you keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgment. And then he says, that thou mayest live. In other words, God is saying to the Jewish people and to every person, I am for you. I want you to live. Heaven is the place of eternal life. Hell is a place of eternal death. I want you to live, that thou mayest live. If we could only hear, if all people could only hear God saying, I want you to live. I want you to be in heaven. I'm not barring you from heaven. I've swung heaven's door open through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want you to live, to go in there. And then it says, in verse 17. But this is a choice. Let me just back up and just say, verse 16 is a choice. He says, look, I'm commanding you. I'm not forcing you. It doesn't say, and that I force you this day to love the Lord thy God, or that I compel you this day to love the Lord thy God. He say, I'm commanding you, but still the choice is left with man. That's self-determination. The choice is left with man. And the proof that the choice is left with man is seen in the next verse, which is verse 17, when it says, but if thine heart turn away, stop. Why would man's heart turn away? Because he's decided to turn away. Because he's he said, I'm not going to listen to God. I've heard, I've heard the voice of God commanding me, but you know what? I say, no, I will not have this. I will not have anyone to rule over me. I say, no. So this is what, this is the case that God is covering in verse 17, when he says, but if thine heart turn away, your heart decides, but if thine heart turn away, so that thou wilt not hear, but shalt be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them. So in other words, God is saying, if you decide to turn your own heart away so that you will not hear. Now, why why is it that they will not hear? Because they've like put cotton in their ears and, and stuffed their ears so they won't hear, in other words. And, and so God says, so you have made yourself so that you will not hear. If you're prejudiced, if you close the door, the minute that you hear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you say, that's it, I'm done, forget it. Slam the door, a literal door to my house or slam the door to my heart. And then God says, there's nothing I can do because you will not hear. And then it says, but shall be drawn away. Drawn away from who? Not away from what? Not away from a religion, but drawn away from the person, the person of God, the person of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're drawn away and you worship other gods. Now, we might look at something like that and say, what do you mean worship other gods? Who's worshiping other gods? I'm not a heathen. This is not Af- uh, This is not the tribes of Africa. You know, this is not, I'm not what, what other gods? Well, how about the God of money? How about the God of possessions? How about the God of reputation? How about the God of self? How about the God of the worshiping at the academic shrine? How about the God of bodily pleasures? Those are like other gods. Those are like idols, and to worship those, you worship other gods and serve them. Then God says, if you'd make that choice, then verse 18 says, then God says, I denounce unto you this day that you shall surely perish. And that's what hell is. It's a place of perish. It says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. And God says, if I denounce it to you, if you take this choice, if you determine self, if you yourself determine that you are going to turn away from God, that's self-determination, then he says, you'll surely perish. You will not prolong your days upon the land, whether thou passest over Jordan to possess it. And then he says, I call heaven and earth to 
record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. It's almost as if God has said, look, I'm not passive on this matter. He said, first of all, I'm calling all of heaven and earth to record your decision. And when a person comes to you or a person comes to anybody and presents to them, God so loved the world that he gave the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for their sins. Whenever that presentation is made so that whosoever believeth in him, that's the invitation. Whosoever believeth in him, God says, we all want to know, what's your decision? And God says, I so much want to know what's your decision. I'm calling heaven and earth to make a record right now. And so he says, I have set before you life and death. That's what John 3.16 is, the setting of God before man of life and death. He said, this is blessing, this is cursing. And then it's like God steps out of himself and he says, so therefore choose life. God says, can I tell you what you should do? Can I please for one more time, please tell you what you should do? Choose life that thou and thy son may live, in other words, thy seed may live. In other words, God is saying, I want you to live. I'm setting it before you, but the choice is yours. It's your self-determination between life and death and between blessing and cursing. And so he says, but now I'll just step in front and I'll tell you, please choose life that you may live because that's what I want for you, the best for you. I made you. That's the voice of God. Thank you for joining us today. Now, we'd like to encourage you to visit our website, friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. And we've added some new features to our website where you can sign up for a Tom Cantor daily devotional verse. You can also sign up to receive the Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries newsletter, where you'll hear about our upcoming Summer Blitz campaign to reach one million lost Jewish people this summer in Jewish cities. Now, you can also go to our website and get a free gospel gift of Tom Cantor's personal testimony and DVD booklet sent to a lost Jewish person that you know, or you can have it sent to you to be able to give to them. You can also call us directly, and we can get a free gospel gift into your hands to give to a lost Jewish person. So call us today, 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. 3051 or go to friendshipwithgod.org. Thanks for listening.